Kia ora, koa and O'Brien tuku ingoa, e kaurungi o Waituhi o Tamaki, no mai haere mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2022 event. We hope you enjoy it. How to be a bad Muslim. Muhammad Hassan's life has taken him from Cairo to New Zealand and on to Istanbul and London, covering the Middle East, Turkey and Asia Pacific as a journalist. Through it all, he has developed a keen eye for questions of identity and culture, which he beautifully brings to bear in his non-fiction essay collection, How to Be a Bad Muslim, ranging across surveillance, migration, language, Islamophobia and the Christchurch attacks. It is a compelling account of growing up Muslim in a post 9/11 world, told with humour and astute observation. A former Slam poetry champion and a prize-winning podcaster, he joins Mike McRoberts in conversation. Wow. <laughs> um, I might just quickly run through some housekeeping things first, if that's okay. Uh, thank you to those who are wearing masks. We do encourage it if you're able to. Uh, the exits are fairly clearly marked if you need to get out because of an emergency or if you need to go to the bathroom. Uh, we will be taking questions at the, towards the end of the session. I'll give you plenty of warning for that. Uh, we have microphones set up, so what I'll do is say we're going to take questions shortly, and if you want to ask a question, feel free just to line up behind the microphone and, um, and then I'll come to you to ask your question. I know that probably feels a little bit intimidating, standing up there while you're sitting down here at the moment, but hey, we're having to sit up here in front of all of you, so get over it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, kia ora koutou, e te whanau. Nei te mihi mai ahoa, ki e tātou katoa, e hui tahinei, e tenei rā. E aro hoki nei, ki nga kaupapa o te rā. Tai tonu atu ki te whakatauki. Ko te manukai miro, no nga te nahere. Ko te manukai mātauranga, no nga te ao. Welcome everyone, it's fantastic to have you here. I wanted to start with a little whakatauki, which I think embraces what we're going to be talking about here today. Basically, it means that the bird that feeds only on the meadow tree only knows the forest. But the bird that feasts on the pools of knowledge knows the world. Kia ora. Kia ora. <laughs> Ko te, ko takitimu te waka, ko te whakapunaki, te maunga, ko te wairoa, te awa, ko nati kahununu, te iwi, ko putahi, te marae, no tamariki makaurau, uh, ahau, ko Mike McRoberts, takawingwa. Kia ora. Uh, that used to be a really big thing for me to do. Uh, it still is. <laughs> I'm learning, um, so thank you. Uh, it's my great pleasure to be the facilitator of this kōrero and to celebrate, of course, the wonderful work of Muhammad Hassan. Uh, I hope many of you have got this book already. If you haven't, there'll be an opportunity afterwards to not only get the book, but also have it signed by Muhammad. I just want to read a, a little bit of a description about Muhammad, um, his greatest hits, if you like. Um, I'm going to need my glasses for this, though, so excuse me. I'll take it directly from his book, but uh, he has had some wonderful 
achievements. Mohammed Hassan is an award-winning poet, journalist, podcaster, and producer from Auckland and Kaibal. He's the author of the anthology National Anthem, which was shortlisted for the Ockham New Zealand Book Awards in 2020. And he was the 2015 New Zealand National Slam champion. <laughs> his poems have been shared widely online and are taught in hundreds of schools internationally. He's toured his work across New Zealand, Australia, the US and UK, and at TEDx's and at the Cheltenham Literature Festival. And he represented New Zealand at the individual World Poetry Slam in 2016. Hassan was nominated for an online media award in 2018 for his work covering the Israel-Palestine conflict. And his RNZ podcast, Public Enemy, was awarded the gold trophy at the 2017 New York Festival's Radio Awards. I think to be a good storyteller, you've got to love stories. And for me, a storyteller is someone who can transport you to a place you'd never thought about going, who can prick your awareness and make you think about things you'd never thought of before, who can challenge you and embrace you, who can make you laugh and make you cry. And in that sense, Muhammad Hassan is a wonderful storyteller. Muhammad Hassan. Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum assalam. I just want to talk about the title of this book for a start because it's pretty, um, it's pretty out there, isn't it? <laughs> how to be a bad Muslim. Um, it's not really a how-to guide though, is it? It really isn't. It's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. I think you picked up on that. Uh, and I think it caused a little bit of a headache when it came to selling the book and putting it out there. I think people were a little bit nervous about the idea of putting a book that says how to be a bad Muslim. And of course, the title is tongue-in-cheek because there is really no such thing as a bad Muslim. And yet the experience of growing up Muslim in Western society is that you grow up and your parents teach you about what Islam is, and your community teaches you about what Islam is, and you go to the mosque and you get, develop an understanding as a child about what it means to be a Muslim. And then you step outside of that, and then you realize that all of those same things suddenly make you uh, a bit of a target make you suspicious, make you dangerous in the eyes of uh, the media, of authorities, of people in the public space. And over the last 20 years, certainly since the September 11 attacks and under the war on terror, what it means to be Muslim has been shaped primarily by the way media, public, government policy looks at the Muslim community. And that is how I define what it means to be a bad Muslim. But it's a contradiction. It doesn't really mean anything, and certainly it's not dictated and defined by Muslims themselves. Bringing together all the parts you have, a poet, uh, a writer, a journalist, a Muslim, I mean, when you factor all of those things into what became this book, what is the most important bit? I like to think of myself as a storyteller, and that is the thread that defines, that runs through all of these different things. I was drawn into journalism because I wanted to change the stories that I was seeing about me and about people around me. And I was watching what was happening in the Arab Spring back home in Egypt and Cairo and Tahrir Square. And that, to me, was a story being reborn and being defined by the people on the ground. And I wanted to be able to have that kind of power over my own narrative and my own story. 
And at the same time, when I got into poetry and I got into writing, I found that same idea there, the idea that you're telling stories. And, you know, as a Muslim, and, and if you follow any faith, then you grow up on stories. They're really the tools that define how you see the world and how you see your place in it. I'm also an Arab, and I come from a long tradition of storytelling, oral storytelling. Uh, the Arab Bedouins used to compete against each other in what, what we'd call today poetry slams. And they took very great pride in their grasp of language and being able to even tear down their opponents using language. And so there is a very long tradition that we're all a part of, regardless of what culture we come from. And to me, the most basic thing about journalism is storytelling. The most basic thing about poetry is storytelling. Through the book, we, we see this coming of age, I guess, for you. Um, moving here from, from Egypt, what it was like to be in New Zealand back then. Um, I love, there's a, a line where you talk about your, you wore your, your sense of unbelonging like an ankle bracelet. Uh, incredible image. Even when you are serving home detention, you eventually get that ankle bracelet off. Have you got yours off? That's a good question. <laughs> I, I'd like to think that I did, although there are spaces uh, where it becomes very clear to me that I still haven't. And I know I talk about airports and my experience in airport terminals and the experience of, you know, almost every Muslim in the world about airport terminals, and not just Muslims, anyone that resembles Muslims. Uh, and there's a category of lists of things. You know, for a long time, our own government had a list of countries that were deemed to be suspect countries. Uh, that's, I mean, I wasn't allowed to see as a journalist, and I tried many times to get that list. But I knew that I was on it, because I would get stopped, and I would get questioned about my whereabouts. And so when I'm in an airport terminal, I'm very, very aware of who I am, what my name is. Even, you know, ironically, I don't necessarily look visibly Muslim, and that's a privilege that is afforded to me that isn't afforded to a lot of people. Certainly it's not the case for my sister who wears the hijab, for my friends who might look more visibly Muslim, might have a longer beard, might dress in traditional ways, might be darker shades than me. That makes their experience a lot more heightened than mine. And even though I feel like I can slip in and out of social situations relatively easily, the moment that I say my name anywhere, it's uh, an immediate trigger. There's no <laughs> way anyone is not going to know what religion I am based on the way that I say my name, based on my name itself. Yeah, I used to do a, a lot of traveling to the Middle East as a reporter and, um, and as a man with dark skin uh, and back then dark hair. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would get stopped constantly um, for so-called random uh, checks. Uh, the worst places were Brisbane Airport oh, and, in Australia. and Tel Aviv. Yes. And um, I had a, a cameraman at the time, his name was uh, Dutchy for obvious reasons, he was Dutch with blonde hair and blue eyes. So Dutchy would also, he'd just walk through, he'd go, I'll get the car, I'll go and pick up some food, <laughs> get some water, blah, 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 and I'll come back and, and grab you afterwards. For me, I always knew at some point that I'd realize um, who I was. And so I wasn't a threat, I didn't think. But for a Muslim, for someone like yourself, you know, there's that anxiety around, you know, what am I going to, <laughs> what am I going to end up um, being accused of here? What, you know, what, what motive have they got to, to hold me? And it's that idea, too, about you don't necessarily need to prove any one specific thing. They're not stopping you because 
oh, they, they just got some uh, information that there might be an attack, and so they're trying to figure it out. But over the last two decades in particular, there's been I this idea that's perpetrated um, in a lot of how we talk about Muslims and about the Muslim community that really says that Muslims are essentially people that are dangerous, that should not be trusted, that the religion itself is something suspicious. And as a result, wherever you go, you are entering these spaces where you have to make sure that people around you feel safe. You have to constantly prove that you don't pose any threat and pose any harm. And the irony, of course, is that, you know, there's how many now? It's two and a half billion Muslims in the world. Almost every one in four people is a Muslim. Uh, look around you. One in four people here might be Muslim. Don't be alarmed. We're fine. <laughs> We're going to have a Muslims Anonymous uh, meeting later on. If That's right. Stay, stay, uh, stick around afterwards. <laughs> but it is, uh, when you think about it in terms of the statistics, it seems bizarre to suspect a quarter of the entire globe and to suspect that somehow 1.5, 2.5 billion people are all working in this hive mind, plotting together. Uh, I mean, if they were, they're pretty useless at it because... <laughs> Look at the, like the statistics. Uh, <laughs> so that's the thing, is that, especially, I mean, it's an experience of growing up as a minority anywhere, really, that there are always barriers you have to overcome, and there are always situations where you feel or reminded of that you don't fit into the homogenous culture of wherever you are. Um, and as a Muslim, I think more recently there's been a focus uh, on us. There's been almost a fascination, an obsession with who we are and our religion and our culture, but the problem, of course, is that for the majority of those years, those stories weren't being told by us. They were being told for us. Mm -hmm. You would turn on the news and you would see a panel of terror experts, and all of them, I mean, I'm not going to, you can guess what color of their skin was, <laughs> but it wasn't Muslim. And they weren't from the Muslim world, and they didn't grow up in that, in that environment. And for year after year after year, everything that we understand as a society about Muslims was being dictated for us, being told for us, and we didn't have any control over it. And part of the reason why I became a journalist is because I realized that the only way that was going to change is for Muslims to be part of that pro process, that part of that conversation. And one of the things that I found out when I entered into my first uh, workplace and into my first newsroom and many newsrooms afterwards is that the reason that Muslim stories are told this way is because the journalists working on these stories don't have access to those communities. They don't understand. And so the same biases that people have in society are the same biases that the journalists have about these stories, about these communities. And it's a similar story for any other ethnic community that we have in this country that doesn't get fair treatment, fair representation. Do you, and I guess to a wider extent, the Muslim world measure life in a pre and post 9-11 way? Absolutely. I think now there's a generation that is growing up post 9-11 that doesn't know what 9-11 was, mm -hmm. and life for them is very different. Uh, and I'm seeing a lot of younger people come through that have a lot more confidence about who they are than me and my friends when we were uh, young. There was certainly a shock that happened uh, in which one day no one has ever heard of a Muslim, and then the next day every single person has heard of a Muslim and they've heard all the same specific things, and they've seen all the same imagery. And over the last couple of years, we've seen how fascinated the world and how fascinated the media is by imagery of Al-Qaeda, of ISIS. 
And day after day, you know, in, in 2014, 2015, there wasn't a day where you turned on the news and you didn't see some representation of ISIS. And up until 2019 in this country, there were very few Muslim voices that were recognizable on screen, in the public eye. People weren't hearing our stories. They weren't hearing them from us. They were hearing about us constantly. And then once you step out into the world as a Muslim, you're very aware of the fact that everyone else is watching the same news as you are. Everyone else is reading the same headlines. Everyone else is watching the same Hollywood films. And everybody has an idea about who you are. And of course, you're not going to sit down with every person and try and change their minds. It's impossible. Yeah, I remember just after 9-11, um, my mum, who lives in Christchurch, Pakia, and not travelled widely, but um, some Afghan refugees who had been on the, the Tampa boat um, uh, moved in across the road from her, and she rang me and said, oh my God, <laughs> you know, these, these Muslims have moved in across the road. I said, oh, go and meet them. <laughs> you know, uh, How much of ignorance is... I mean, th th that obviously drives the fear, but, but, but how do you combat that? How do you change that? <sighs> I've been trying to understand how to answer that question, and I think it's in two parts. And one is about representation, and that is about having access to people from different communities. In this case, having access to Muslim voices and Muslim stories, positive Muslim stories. And that's also part of the problem, is that almost everything we understand about Muslims in the Muslim world is negative. And it's either uh, terrorism, it's either the, the bad guys, or it's the victims. It's war, it's poverty, it's, it's, it's devastation. And that doesn't shape a human being in our eyes. We understand humanity through joy and through laughter and adversity and pain and happiness and all of these things. And when you're only seeing a section of somebody's humanity, then it's very easy to not feel a connection to them. So the more representation we have on television, uh, in the media, in our daily lives, then the, that's always going to have an impact. And the other part of it is, I think, has nothing to do with me or my community. And it's about people challenging their own beliefs, their own stereotypes. And that's not work that me or anyone else can do for someone else. That is a, a journey that people have to take on their own. Mm. I might add, my mum did go over and meet that family, and they became great friends, and she's moved houses twice since, and they're still great friends. Which I'm so glad. That's fantastic, yeah. yeah. Um, there was 9-11, but then also came the war on terror, which not only influenced our news, but also our entertainment with movies, and you talk about this in the book, and the way that uh, the Mus Muslim faith was portrayed, the way that Muslims were portrayed, um, was terrible. It really was. Uh, and, you know, I think it's starting to change. Uh, it's not as blatant as it was before. And I think there's a lot of studies about the influence and interaction between you know, the military industrial complex in the US and Hollywood and how much of an influence uh, the American military, the CIA, the Pentagon has on the way movies are shaped. And of course, when you're at war, if you are at war in Iraq or Afghanistan, it serves a purpose to have movies that are trying to portray your troops on the ground in a positive light, to portray you as the hero. Everybody wants to be seen as the hero. 
And we exist in a world that is dominated by American culture, American media. And so, of course, all of us were watching those same movies, and all of us were seeing the same narrative that wasn't painting a whole picture. And I remember during the Iraq War, it was the beginnings of what would become the Al Jazeera News Network. And the reason they became so important during that war was because they were the only foreign language media that wasn't embedded with U.S. troops mm. on the ground. And so all the other journalists were following U.S. troops, obviously for safety reasons and for access reasons, but they were only telling stories from the voices and the mouths of American soldiers. And Al Jazeera started doing something that was new to English-speaking audiences. They were showing, listen, let's go talk to Iraqis on the ground. Let's show you the other side of this war. And that was the power of journalism. That was the power of changing this narrative. But up until that point, we were all watching uh, and this war unfold through the eyes. Now, of course, we all look back and can unanimously agree that it was a terrible idea, that it was a war started on false pretenses, and that we were you know, misled into, uh, into entering this conflict and, and, and to prolonging the war in Afghanistan. But at the time, there were a lot of people that bought into it, and why wouldn't you? It's everything that you see on the, on the news. It's everything you watch in the media. And that's why representation is important. And that's why having people behind the screens that are telling those stories, whether in the newsrooms, whether in uh, producing offices, or whether in production companies, makes a huge difference to how people around the world are seen, especially when they don't have the same mechanisms in entertainment that the US does in telling its own stories. Yes, I remember covering the war in Iraq, and um, New Zealand, of course, had refused to to be part of it, uh, which was in incredible. Um, but yeah, and press conferences and things like that in Kuwait and then Iraq would be at the back of the room with the French and the Al Jazeera journalists. <laughs> but it was a good place to be. <laughs> How did you feel being in New Zealand living through that? I mean, I like to think of us as being a, a pretty smart nation when it comes to taking in a lot of information and making our, our own minds up. Um, I think we've got a you know, not just because I'm part of it, but I think we've got a pretty good media too that reflects that. But how did you feel during that time? I mean, I was, uh, I think I was in the early years of high school at that point in time, and I remember watching kind of in disbelief as this, uh, this whole thing was unfolding. And mm. I think, I mean, it was one of the first instances that a war was being almost like broadcast live on, on television. We're seeing minute by, by minute the invasion of Baghdad and we're seeing minute by minute the fall of Saddam and, and, and what happens afterwards. And it changes everything around you. Everybody's watching the same events and talking about them. And uh, when you don't have a mechanism as a young person to be able to defend yourself or to articulate yourself about US foreign policy and, and, and all of these uh, complicated things, then it becomes very frustrating. Um, and it was the same thing after the aftermath of 9-11. I, I think there wasn't a Muslim kid in the country or, in, or anywhere else across the Western world that didn't feel like they immediately had to defend themselves and their religion. Um, and I think it was an important step that New Zealand didn't go to Iraq. And it was something that we did rightfully take pride in. Um, but we also went to Afghanistan. Mm. And we stayed there for a long time. And there were things that we did there that we're not proud of. Um, and part of that was, you know, I mean, it's, uh, there's, it's complicated the way foreign policy works. We have relations with the US, we have relations with Australia, all of these things factor into our own policy. But at the end of the day, 
as a world, I think we never really got an opportunity to look back at those two wars in particular, but many others that have happened since, and reflect on whether we all played a part in letting these conflicts happen. We have the conflict in Ukraine at the moment, and everybody, to a certain extent, is really engaged in what's happening, really engaged in uh, following the news in Ukraine, uh, protecting the refugees coming out of Ukraine, um, and countering, you know, the Russian aggression. And it's almost, you know, I've just come from the UK, and it's everywhere. Everybody feels like they're collectively in this fight together behind the Ukrainians. But we just came out of the war in Syria. Yeah, and it's almost identical in terms of the numbers, the people are displaced. The Russian same, aggression. Antagonist, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was in Homs and Aleppo, and those places were just completely smashed, nothing left. Mm -hmm. um, and you wonder how on earth that level of destruction could happen. But you're right, there was, you know, they were pushing back on um, migrants from, from Syria. Whereas in, in the Ukraine now, or in Europe at least, they're, they're walking in with, with open arms. And the media plays a really important role in this. There were uh, a compilation of videos that um, I came across and I, I reported on where you had a number of English-speaking media outlets saying at the beginning of the conflict that, you know, these are not Syrian refugees, these are European refugees. And they were saying very explicitly, these are white, blue-eyed refugees. They come from civilized societies. We identify with them, and that's why we should take them in. And you have to ask yourself, and Mike, you were in Homs, you met some of these refugees from mm -hmm. Syria. They're not uncivilized people. <laughs> They're doctors and teachers and educators, and some of them come from middle-class backgrounds. Some of them have had uh, safety nets uh, financial safety nets their entire lives and never imagined that anything like this would happen to them. Syria was one of the more secure countries in the Middle East before this war broke out. But it's the way that we paint stories about people, it's the way that we allow people to be seen in the, in the, in, uh, the public eye that then alters the way that we connect with them. There's a reason people feel like they can connect with European refugees and feel like they share a similar understanding and a culture but don't feel that same way when it comes to Syrians. And it has everything to do with how these people are represented. Well, while we're in that neighbourhood, let's talk about your time uh, in in uh, the West Bank and and covering the Palestine-Israeli uh, conflict, mm. because that to me is is a conflict which is totally different from anything else we've ever known, and conjures up totally different emotions. How was it for you to cover that? As an Arab. Uh, and as an Egyptian, certainly, I mean, this is, we're neighboring countries. Uh, this has been uh, an issue that's been very familiar to me my whole life. And it's the same with most Arabs. Um, and certainly with a lot of Muslims as well, because of the importance of Al-Aqsa Mosque. A lot of people feel very much connected to it. And at the same time, it's an issue that a lot of people feel hasn't really been uh, portrayed in the best light. And part of that is, Again, similar to the issue in Ukraine, people feel like they have an understanding, a connection to the Israeli side of the issue that they don't have with the Palestinian side of the issue. And there's a lot of politics involved, especially when it comes to the US. Mm. It's very difficult in the US to talk about this issue uh, in ways that don't immediately become politicized and heightened. Here, I don't think we have that problem. I think we have the luxury, and, and oftentimes we do. Oftentimes the media gets it right in the way they portray things. Going over there was quite eye-opening for me because I got to see 
what the situation was like on the ground. In the last year or so, we had a, several human rights organizations come out and with reports calling situations specifically in the West Bank, but also in other parts in East Jerusalem, in, uh, in Gaza Strip, as a system of apartheid. And of course, here in New Zealand, we understand exactly what apartheid is because we have our own proud history of opposing apartheid when it was in South Africa, the Springbok tour. So many people here ha might have stories about that time that might have gone to the marches themselves. This is a story that didn't always seem so clear. Uh, I mean, Nelson Mandela was uh, a terrorist in the, in, in the eyes of the UK government for years, up until the 90s, even after apartheid was dismantled. And then there was a shift. There was a point in time where people started talking about the idea of boycott and the idea of economic pressure and how that could change societies. And what I saw when I went to the West Bank was a situation that was incredibly dire uh, and incredibly restrictive. Palestinians in the West Bank do not have any rights to movement. They have more than 200 checkpoints uh, dotted throughout the entire uh, strip of land. They can't move in and out without spe specific Israeli control. They have raids that come into their villages every single day and every single night. And the West Bank is under military control. It is legally a military-occupied place. And yet, Palestinians don't have sovereignty over that. They can't have elections when they choose to have elections. They can't move between Gaza and the West Bank. And you have a lot of conflicts. And I mean, this is uh, controversial, but it shouldn't be. But I think we have a lot of reasons to connect with what's happening over there because, I mean, New Zealand, as far as we've come and as complex a society as, as we have, is essentially a settler colonial state. That is how the country began. It began with a group of people that came to a country, displaced some of them of the local po indigenous population, and controlled the land. And we've, we're, we're dealing with it in a lot of complex ways. But Israel is not dissimilar to that. It is a settler colonial state. It is a settler colonial state that came out of horrific events, but at the end of the day, this is an indigenous population that is grappling with a lot of the same issues that we are starting to become familiar with here. And I think if there is that connection, there's a better understanding of how we can see an issue like that. And I think most people, it's easy to dismiss because people talk about the Israel-Palestine conflict as being complex and nobody understands it. But I think that's an excuse. <laughs> I don't think it's as complex as we make it out to be. Yeah, well, I've um, reported from Gaza uh, a number of times, including 2014 and the height of that conflict. And... Uh, yeah, it was pretty obvious then. There wasn't <laughs> it wasn't that complicated when you were stuck in Gaza and like fish in a barrel, basically. Uh, I, it was incredible. But you're right. I think it is um, a conflict that we have a good understanding of. When I got back uh, from that trip, uh, there were marches up and down the country uh, in support of the Palestinians and and calling for a ceasefire. Even John Key got up in Parliament and um, condoned the the violence on on both sides. But um, yeah, uh, it, it is something that I, I think we actually find easier to understand um, in, in the way that you've just described. Mm -hmm. There's a, a, a line in your book where you talk about your sister, you're quoting here, and she says, I don't want to have to smile and be happy all the time so that people don't think I'm a terrorist. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, she told me that the other day that, uh, that she read that in the book and then it kind of brought back a lot of bad memories. She's like, why, why did you bring this back up again? <laughs> I think I learned a lot about being a Muslim from the experience of my mother and my sister. 
they're both visibly Muslim. They both wear the hijab. It's almost unmistakable when you see them in the streets that they are Muslim. And I think after the events of March 15, we started becoming a lot more familiar with the hijab and, and what it represents. But for a very long time, uh, it was something that if I was walking around the mall with my family, I would be constantly alert and aware of the way people were looking at them specifically. And I don't know what it is. I think some people sometimes feel like they have a license to stare at something that's different. Um, but it felt very uncomfortable. And in those situations, I felt the need to be protective of them, but I didn't know how. I couldn't. Sometimes I'd like try and stare people down so that they'd feel uncomfortable and then maybe they'd get how uncomfortable it is to be stared at. <laughs> um, but it was at the end of the day, it was still something that I was only experiencing secondhand through their experience. And there, were, there have been a lot of studies in Australia, in the UK, about Islamophobia, and by and large, the victims of Islamophobic attacks, of Islamophobic abuse, both physical and verbal, are Muslim women, much more than men. And it has only increased in the last decade or so. Um, there is a really fantastic um, anthropologist by the name of Shakira Hussain in Australia who wrote about the experience of Muslim women. And she says that part of that is, has been the success of Muslim women in Western societies. That there was a narrative that began after 9-11 that Muslim women were oppressed and, and obedient to their husbands and didn't have a voice. And that Muslim men were oppressors and, and backwards and, and dangerous. And then over time, Muslim women started proving them wrong and, and being successful and, and being visible. And certainly in Australia's case, coming on TV and, and, and uh, taking up posts in government. And that made people uncomfortable. And as a result, that started shifting. And then it started going from Muslim men being the faces of Islamophobia to Muslim women. And that's something that really upsets me because as a brother and a son, I, I feel the need to protect my family. And oftentimes, I don't quite know how to. Mm. The three essays in the book that deal with the events in and around March 15th, I don't mind admitting, move me to tears. Um, it actually, I felt a bit of PTSD <laughs> reading it. Uh, I don't know what it was like writing it, but I just want to talk through those essays and, and what they meant to you. Um, I guess to even put them down in writing must have been difficult. It took a long time as a writer to be able to find the words to, to talk about what happened. And I have to constantly remember the fact that I uh, have an enormous privilege to be able to even speak to this kind of thing where a lot of the community themselves in Christchurch don't necessarily have those platforms, the, the means to articulate themselves in, in, in a way that is understandable for everybody. And some of them are, and some of them have been, and that has been really profound. Um, and sometimes I don't know how much I can say uh, as somebody that is not from Christchurch, uh, as somebody that was not at the mosques when it happened, but it's a small community. And I, I tell people that everybody, almost every Muslim that I know, either knew somebody that was lost at the mosques or knew someone whose family member, whose father, whose son, daughter was lost at the mosque or had friends at the mosque. And I'm certainly no exception to that. And it's also not something that as a New Zealand Muslim, I feel like I have dealt with this alone. 
I was overseas when the attacks happened and I came back to cover them, but I got the uh, experience of Muslims in other parts of the world. And I have friends in Australia and, and in the UK that told me that on the day when the attacks happened, they were afraid to go to their mosques. And it was a Friday, and we're 12 hours ahead of the rest of the world, and so we had our Friday prayers before they did. And that day was terrifying for everybody. Some people described it as a second 9-11 for them in the way that they were suddenly aware of who they were and the fact that they were targets in their societies. And I've been still trying to find ways of talking about what happened in Christchurch because in a lot of ways I think we're all still trying to process it. And it's not something that's very easy to be able to articulate, but I shared in the book uh, a conversation I had with my brother who has two young nephews now, two or three years old, and I remember last year him telling me that he doesn't want to take them to the mosques anymore because he doesn't feel like he can protect them there. And that to me is heartbreaking. For a long time growing up in this country, mosques were places of safety for us. There were communal spaces and spaces where you got to almost kind of take off your Muslim garb and shackle the ankle monitor and, uh, and just be normal with people. Uh, especially when times got heavy. And obviously things weren't heavy all the time. We have wonderful lives and uh, fulfilling lives and mosques were places of laughter and, and, and joking and children and play and all these kinds of things. And now we're having to rebuild that relationship with these spaces, knowing that we have been vulnerable in the past and could be in the future. And we're certainly not the only community that has been targeted for their identity but we are trying to figure out what that means in this country and what it means to belong in this country, which I think is a question a lot of people in the Muslim community never had to think about before and suddenly feel like they do. I'm from Christchurch. I grew up there. And I, I covered the mosque shootings from the first day. We flew down from Auckland. I organised my brother to picked me up at the airport, basically ran off the plane with the cameraman, we're running across the front of the airport, and my brother's standing there in front of his ute going like this, and it was because there was an AOS officer behind him with his gun trained on me, wondering why I was running. <laughs> Brown man running in an airport. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when I talked about having PTSD before, it's because we would broadcast every night down by the Floral Tribute. And as I said, I grew up in Christchurch. I know this community well. I know how xenophobic and racist they are <laughs> at times. Um, and I was blown away um, by the compassion of ordinary Cantabrians just coming out and wanting to lay down flowers, write a note, hug a Muslim. It seemed to be a pretty <laughs> popular thing to do, whether they wanted it or not, I think. Um, <laughs> And in some way, I, I, I felt this incredible sense that maybe things were, were going to change. Have they changed? It's a complex question. <laughs> <laughs> We've got time. We have time. I think, I think some things have changed. I think people have become a lot more aware uh, that this community exists and who they are and what they believe in and some of their faces are recognizable now, and that is wonderful. And I also 
think what's changed is that we realize that we have this compa compassion as a country. We have this ability to come together when we need to, to heal. And we certainly saw that. The Friday after the shootings, I was in, uh, outside the mosque where we had uh, a Friday sermon in public. Mm. It was broadcast on the radio, on, on television, that the call to prayer was, was broadcast on the radio. We saw female reporters wearing hijabs. We saw a lot of people from the members of the public that not only wore hijabs that day, but came and surrounded Muslims as they prayed together. And I remember so many times in my life where I've had to sneak into random corners in public to pray and how embarrassed I felt about that and I, so having to kind of hide some certain things of my culture and my religion and to see this happening so publicly and, and in front of everybody and everybody coming together to embrace us, that is something that I will never, ever forget. That is a life-defining moment for me, and I, I, I'm sh as I'm sure it was for a lot of Muslims. I think we still have a long way to go. I think we'd be fooling ourselves to think that the sentiment has disappeared, that we no longer have racism and xenophobia and Islamophobia specifically in this country, that people are suddenly feeling very comfortable around Muslims and don't feel the same kind of agitation. We'd be fooling ourselves if we don't look at what's happening in the rest of the world uh, all across Europe right now in places like France where Islamophobia is at an all-time high, where the prime minister or uh, the president of, uh, of, of a country like France is campaigning openly um, on controlling the Muslim community, on controlling the way they dress and they pray and they behave and they exist in society, on having checklists that, they, that, that allows Muslims to prove that they're French citizens over and over again. This is not just happening there. We're just coming off the back of the Trump's disastrous first term and who knows if he gets back into office, what's going to happen. We'd be fooling ourselves to think that this stuff isn't happening and, and, and might not happen again because there are people in our community that want to see a world like that, that might not be as vocal about it as uh, some other people are in other countries, but, I mean, to this day, whenever a friend of mine writes something in the media that doesn't make people happy, you just have to read the comments. And it's, those people are real. They exist. We know they exist. We know there are people in our families that hold these views. We know some of us might hold certain views that we don't want to acknowledge to ourselves. And so I think the idea that we came together and we showed this tremendous amount of compassion and healing and grief has absolved us of the journey that we have to go on, I don't think that's true. I think we still have a long way to go, and it's not just about Muslims. It's about every community that we have here. It's about our relationship with the indigenous community here that still has a long way to go. I think we ha have taken important steps. I think we are a country that is compassionate, that is open to understanding, that is kind. We talk about kindness a lot as a country. I think that is a tool that we have that other countries don't have the luxury of. But I think we'd be kidding ourselves if we didn't understand that we were on a long road together and that we are all on this road together and that we all have work to do. I think I'll probably speak for a, a lot of New Zealanders when I say there was a, almost a sense of pride in the way and the compassion that was shown and, and the way the country responded. Um, our Prime Minister wore a hijab. You know, those images went all around the world. 
But what often gets lost in that conversation is the way that the Muslim community responded. And I remember interviewing Farid Ackman, who's in a wheelchair, whose wife was killed. And he almost instantly forgave the gunman. And it was that attitude and that incredible love that was shown in the face of the worst atrocity that I, I still just find remarkable. And it was. Uh, I, I cannot even begin to understand what kind of strength it takes to be in a position like that, to lose your partner mm. in such a horrific incident and to have just survived it yourself and to bring out of that a sense of compassion and kindness and forgiveness. And I think his story is, is one that is, deserves to be a part of our history as are many of the stories that came out of that community, that came out of the survivors. And I think it's important to know that people, Muslims or otherwise, have enormous capacity to heal. And at the same time, that we have to embrace all methods of healing. And I know there were a lot of people in the Muslim community that wanted to showcase what Islam is in the face of this violence. And there were also a lot of others that felt really angry, justifiably angry. I felt angry. <laughs> and it's interesting because for a very long time, the Muslim community has had to feel like they were backed into a corner because of the war on terror, because of 9-11, and, and felt like whenever anything happened uh, that we were associated with, either here or overseas, we had to come out and apologize and condemn it and be gracious and, and show the true face of Islam and show that we know we're compassionate people, this is not what our religion teaches. And then another attack would happen and we'd come out again and say, we apologize, we condemn, and another attack would happen and we'd come out and apologize and condemn. And every time it would happen, people would come out and say, why is the Muslim community not saying anything? Clearly they support this. And it became almost this traumatic cycle of defensiveness that we were in. And one of the really weird things that I saw, and again, I'm speaking for myself and I know other people see things very differently, that after the March 15 attacks, you had a lot of people that almost instinctively felt like we needed to come out and apologize and show graciousness and show that Islam is good and it's, and it's open and it's nonviolent. And, and it was almost like this reaction that people had that this was the only way that we would have to respond to this. But there was so much anger that people felt. There was so much anger that I felt that I didn't know what to do with. I have been a reporter that has been reporting on these issues for a long time. I've been reporting on the policies that several successive governments have put in place to monitor the Muslim community, monitor our mosques, uh, stop us and check us at airports, um, put informants in our, in our places of worship, in our communities, that created so much fear and, and, and fracturing. And at the same time, we would uh, tur often turn on the news and, and see media portrayals that scared people from us, and 
for a long time, a lot of people didn't feel like they had the tools to be heard or to be seen. And people were being attacked on the streets and women were being uh, denied access to public transport on some occasions. And, and we've been calling for the police to record these things for a long time and they, had it, and they haven't up until that point. And we know that the intelligence agency was monitoring people and was getting increased funding from the government. And during that time, Muslim leaders were denied access to the same government bodies, the prime minister's office, all of these people that they wanted to come and explain, hey, these policies are going to negatively impact us. You had other um, people like, uh, like, the, like the Women's Network and Anjam Rahman who day in and day out was going and, and trying to get funding to support people in the community, trying to raise an alarm, and her voice was ignored. Other people's voices were ignored. And so when this attack happened, it wasn't that we expected it to happen, but we expected something to happen. And that was hard to let go of afterwards. In the very first essay, you document how that came about. Do you believe it could happen again? I have no doubt that it could happen again. I, I don't see anything that has changed that would stop it from happening again. I mean, I, I would hope that our intelligence bodies are a lot more aware of these things and are a lot more on top of them um, so that the early signs are there. You know, there's so much documentation about de-radicalization when it comes to the Muslim community. There's so much money that gets put into monitoring the activities of young Muslims online to make sure that the early signs are, are noted and that people are stopped um, before that. Are we doing that when it comes to the far right? Are we doing that when it comes to Islamophobia? I don't know if these policies have been implemented, but this is what people have been calling for for a long, long time. Do I think that this kind of hatred still exists in the world? Of course. And part of battling that is by being vocal about it. There's work that we have to do in our communities, in our own families to dismantle racism and xenophobia and hatred. And there's also public things that we can do as societies, as governments, as countries, both here and overseas. I think there is starting to be a shift where people aren't seeing Islam as this boogie monster in the same way that they were 20 years ago. It's not as foreign and as alien as it was in the beginning, but there are still people that are trying to fight the rights of minorities everywhere. And that fight isn't going to end. Uh, and we just have to figure out what side of that fight we're going to be on and whether we're going to put our money where our mouths are. I love your essay, A Letter Unsent. Um, I think it was originally for the Verb... Verb Wellington, yeah. Verb Wellington. Um, and in it, the um, customs officer or immigration person uh, confesses that maybe the, the gunman may have walked past him on that same day that he stopped you. Uh, <laughs> which is, again, uh, quite confronting imagery. But um, did it feel good to write that? Uh, it was a little bit scary to write that. <laughs> I... Because uh, you actually... It started with an OIA, didn't it? It did start with an OIA. Uh, and in 2018, I, I was stopped at Auckland Airport for uh, three and a half hours. And during that time, basically, uh, everything from my bag was, was taken out and put on the side. People were passing by and like staring at me. Everything was scrutinized. My laptop was scanned. My phone was scanned. My poor parents were outside in the airport terminal trying to call me. And I was being told over and over again that I can't touch my phone. I can't answer. 
Uh, and it was pretty alarming, and it shouldn't have been because I, I'd done so much reporting in the year before that about Muslims being stopped at airports. Mm. And there were <laughs> dozens of people that had told me that they had stopped at airports and, um, and that they believed that, that it happened because of their names or their ethnicities and where they were born. Um, and they didn't know what their rights were when they entered into these spaces. And, and I was sitting here at this uh, desk next to the conveyor belts as people uh, walked by, and I realized that I didn't know what my rights were in this space. I, I, I didn't know what I was allowed to refuse and, and not refuse. Um, and when March 15 happened, I was thinking a lot about who we saw as suspects in our society, who warranted to be stopped and searched at airports, uh, and why is it that it could have been so easy for someone to move here from Australia and start training uh, in a f rifle uh, association for a year and drive around and monitor places of worship and make plans and in the safety and comfort of knowing that they had no reason to be suspicious, that nobody was going to stop them at any point in time and being like, hey, what are you doing? Let's take a closer look at this person's search history, their online activity. And of course, it was all there, hiding in plain sight. And I wanted to connect those two things um, and also write from the perspective of somebody else, which is a little bit scary and a little bit daring. <laughs> um, I didn't want to personalize it. Obviously, I don't remember what the person's name was that stopped me. Certainly wasn't something that they, of their own accord, decided to do. It's part of a structure and a system. They're following rules and orders. But I wanted to understand and explore what it could look like from somebody else's perspective that wasn't mine. I understood what Christchurch and March 15 meant to me as a Muslim. And I wanted to put myself in a position of somebody who wasn't Muslim what maybe had an interaction with, who after March 15 had to figure out how to process this thing, how to process their relationship with the Muslim community if maybe they'd never had any kind of relationship with them before. I've been so fascinated by what you've been saying. I've realised we need to go to uh, questions from the floor if you'd like to line up. Um, just while we're getting our first question, one of my favourite uh, stoppages at an um, airport was Brisbane. That was almost... It was always great, Brisbane Airport. <laughs> uh, and they stopped me this time because of my flak jacket, my, my bulletproof jacket. Right. Because it was a danger. And I said, so what, someone's going to run through the airport wearing it and not get shot? <laughs> um, yes. Uh, namaste and ni hao. My bad Asian question is, can you just give some general remarks on the representation of Muslim arts in this country? My, the context to my question is that Auckland is 28% Asian, 4% Muslim, 16% Pacific, 11% Maori. So Asians and Muslims pay about one third of Auckland Council rates. In, in, the, in the 22 years I have attended the Auckland Arts Festival, I have seen zero significant Muslim cultural events. I have to fly to Sydney and Adelaide to see good displays of, um, of uh, Islamic art and culture, mm. which basically means that Asians and Muslims in this country are cross-subsidizing white and Maori culture. Um, 
I mean, I don't know what else to add to that. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. pretty profound. Is that a question or a statement? I mean, that's an that's a incredible statement, and, and you're absolutely right. Uh, we have a mayoral election that's happening right now. I hope they're listening to you and realizing how many of their voters come from these communities. And when I often talk about Muslim representation, you're absolutely right. There has been very little um, that we've seen in our art sector and a lot of other sectors. But I also have to remind myself that it has been a very long journey for Chinese New Zealanders to get representation in this country. And they have been here for 200 years. And we now finally have our very first poet laureate, who's a Chinese New Zealander. <coughs> Chris Teese, which is incredible. And I think, again, it's uh, a question of representation, but it's also a question of access. It's a question of who has access to these spaces, who gets invited to be on these panels. I'm getting invited here, and uh, it's a privilege for me. But before this year, there weren't a lot of Muslim New Zealanders that were getting these spaces. Uh, and there were very few people from Asian communities that were getting these spaces. And, and there are people that I know that are friends of mine in the sector that are, have been working tirelessly, night and day, to build these spaces. And it's oftentimes the case that the first person that comes along is going to have to do all the work themselves. And then there's going to be infrastructure there for other people to come along. But I think our art sector has a lot um, to do with creating these spaces and making them happen. And our local government has a lot to do with funding the kind of arts representation that we need to see. And so I hope in this mayoral election, we, uh, that is an issue that is talked about and we get somebody that is aware of that. Thank well, you. I think we might just take this uh, next question and then we'll have probably time for one. Um, I am an atheist and a feminist amongst other things. I understand that within Christianity there are um, extremes, so extreme Christians um, basically seem to be seeking to control women in a very um, unpleasant manner. Um, some Christians will say that they are feminists too. Um, and I'm just wondering how you reconcile, um, I'm genuinely curious about um, feminism and uh, the Islamic faith. I mean, I'm a feminist. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I can speak for myself, but there are now a lot of Muslim women that are speaking from these spaces. We have uh, feminist experts that are speaking to these spaces and, and understanding how um, feminism and Islam um, work in the 21st century. Uh, I think it's, I mean, there are basic things about equality and, and representation when it comes to genders in the workplace and society and all of these things. And that's not unique to any religion or any, any faith. Um, there are massive, popular, um, very engaged feminist movements now in almost every Muslim country. I, my own <coughs> country in Egypt, we have um, uh, a lot of feminist voices that we've had for a very long time. Um, and so I think this is something that isn't unique to any community. Um, it is a universal thing, and it is something that we are working through as, as a world. And Everybody has opportunities to prove it and when it comes to their work and interactions with other people. And then a big part of that, in my opinion, is uplifting women's voices, uplifting Muslim women's voices. There's been a very long uh, narrative, long living narrative about Muslim women. I touched upon it, we touched upon it earlier before. 
Um, and Muslim women have been proving that narrative wrong time and time again. And the best thing that I can do is to try and uplift the voices of women in my community and hope that other people do the same because that is the only way somebody's going to be able to answer that question properly to you um, is to hear from a Muslim woman. Time for one last question. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum I just want to acknowledge, uh, as a fellow Muslim, I just want to acknowledge you and all the work that you have done and really proud of um, you standing up and speaking um, on behalf of Muslims. Um, I just wanted to ask you a suggestion because one of the challenges we as Muslim community have is having those professionals, young people, that will get up and speak on behalf of the community. Can I just ask you what are your thoughts and suggestions are so we can encourage more and more people that can stand up like yourself and, and speak on behalf of the community and give that message that we want to give rather than other people giving their narrative, narrative of our community. Thank yeah, you. No, absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, I grew up in a family of engineers. <laughs> and when I went into high school, I didn't know what to do. And I, I felt like I had to be an engineer. So I did engineering school. And it was a terrible mistake. <laughs> and I hated it, uh, and I left and I became a journalist, and I was one of uh, a handful of journalists from my community that I'd ever met in this country. Um, and as a result, I was able and I had the opportunity to do stories about the Muslim community. And it's a similar story for a lot of immigrants and a lot of brown people as well, that you kind of are encouraged to go into uh, STEM uh, um, uh, areas and, and to go into medicine or engineering, and it makes sense because they're secure places and they hold a certain level of prestige in society. But a problem that we have in our community is that we don't have enough lawyers, we don't have enough uh, politicians, we don't have enough um, veterinarians, we don't have enough people in all these sectors. Everybody in the Muslim community knows a doctor they can call when they're feeling sick. And it happens a lot. Muslim doctors get harassed a lot by friends and family and, and, uh, and it's a beautiful thing that we have that. But we don't know who to talk to when we need legal help when we need immigration help, when we need uh, a story that being told in a local paper that might be a cultural story. We don't know who to talk to. And I realized this in the aftermath of uh, March 15, when I was getting calls from every media outlet in the world trying to interview me about what was happening in Christchurch. And I was a journalist that was there trying to interview other people about what was happening. And I realized that people didn't know who to talk to when it came to Muslims. They didn't know who their local representative was. They didn't know who community leaders were. And I think a lot of what we can do in the community and in other communities is encourage young people to pursue all of these different fields and to think about it as representation and to think about it as doing service not only for the community but our society as a whole. Thank you so much. I've been warned if we go more than five minutes over, they won't validate my parking. So, um, <laughs> Mohammed, it has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, and it's been so fantastic to hear your voice and to, and to hear you talk about your wonderful book, How to Be a Bad Muslim. Um, I know that you're going to be heading upstairs very shortly and uh, we'll be signing books. If you haven't got one already, please go and get one. And Mohammed will be and he's uh, gracious enough to, uh, to sign it. Thank you so much again for your time. Okay. Uh, on behalf of everyone here, thank you.
You've been listening to a podcast from the 2022 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi o Tamaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.